Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. I'm David Armstrong, the executive director of wealthmanagement.com. And as you know, this is the podcast where we speak to RAs that are growing by design, not by default. And for this episode, I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Hurdle from Hurdle Callahan and Company. Jonathan, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you are the founder of Hurdle Callahan. Uh, do you want to tell us just a little bit for listeners who maybe don't know when you started the firm and how you see the firm, uh, where it sits in the wealth management landscape? Sure. Uh, we started the business 35 years ago, 1988. We manage about $20 billion. It's not under consultation. It's all under discretion. Um, and our business is 50% families. We like to talk about philanthropic families and the mission-driven institutions that inspire them. So 50% of our business is families, and the other 50% are college endowments and foundations primarily. And we're serving as chief investment officers for them. So we are a registered investment advisor legally, and um, but the role we play is managing, in almost all cases, their entire liquid uh, portfolio. And so we really set the organization up to be an independent investment office. And the idea was, in my former life, I observed lots of very successful investors and that the, the very best of those uh, successful investors used their own independent office. So they didn't rely on a bank, they didn't rely on a brokerage firm, they didn't rely on an investment product shop, but they had their own staff and that staff would cherry pick the world for best in class specialists and then fold them into a custom plan for each member of the family or for the institution. So our job, our idea 35 years ago was to take that model, which people most mostly associated with Yale. Uh, so it was, uh, and really was available and most people thought of it as an Ivy League approach and um, we just wanted to make that available more broadly. So to people that had you know, $50 million, $100 million, and uh, so forth, as opposed to Yale, I think today has, I don't know, $28 billion. So when you have $28 billion, you can afford to pay for a full staff, a full full staff of qualified professionals. But the but you know if you have $200 million in an endowment, that $200 million is just as important to your organization as the $28 billion is to Yale. And yet people are limited to the approach. So our idea 35 years ago was to replicate that structure and make it broadly available. So would this be um, for on the family side, investment uh, solution for a family office? Eh? Well, it could be. The other place other than David Swenson's office at Yale that I really admired and we tried to replicate was Arthur Miltenberger was the CIO at the RK Mellon family office. And um, so it does. we don't do family office services. We're an investment shop. Mm -hmm. Now, to do investment well, we have to do all the planning. And so we have a sophisticated estate planning and tax planning, but we uh, really focus on the investment side. So it would be equivalent to an investment office at a very large family. 
Uh, you can think of, for example, Bill Gates's family, somebody that could afford to amortize a complete staff. Would this be a thing, you know, we hear about the outsourced chief investment officer all the time now, right? I mean, this is a, a term that gets bandied about uh, quite often over the past few years. Um, it seems like many firms are calling themselves outsourced chief investment officers. What, how do you, how do you view the, the growth and the use of that phrase, uh, that term to describe a firm being used too broadly, being applied too broadly, do you think? Uh, I sure do. I What happened was we get credit with pioneering this notion of an independent office, which is also called outsourced chief investment officer. The first requirement, in my opinion, of being an actual outsourced chief investment officer is to not have any conflicts of interest. So either David Swenson at Yale or Arthur Miltenberger at the Mellon family, the, nobody would have ever tolerated them having a hidden agenda or getting paid more for a different asset allocation. Uh, and that's generally what the model does elsewhere. So in other words, the banks, uh, the big firms, uh, the big money market, money management shops say they're doing OCIO, but because they have this array of products, they're really, in my view, dis uh, disqualified from being an, a CIO. You're really using a conflicted model to serve a, a role that you really, number one requirement has to be unconflicted. I like to think of you don't go to Merck or Smith Klein for your health care. You go to the Mayo Clinic, and then the Mayo Clinic decides whether to use, uh, you know, a Merck drug or a or a you know Pfizer drug or a Medtronic device. But you don't go to the producer of the products for your advice. You go to uh, an independent professional, and so it's the it really has grown. The most growth has been in the pension space, and this is where you see these large firms, uh, large Wall Street firms, claiming to be OCIOs and getting a lot of assets. And I frankly think that's a more of a CYA decision on part of the uh, pension fund than it is a ROI decision, return on investment. Because they can uh, get the uh, responsibility outside of their walls. And know. it's a recognizable name, you know, so if somebody complains about it, they say, well, we hired, you know, Goldman Sachs or BlackRock. So um, I, I think those are great firms, but they shouldn't be in the OCIO business, in my opinion. Understood. Was there something when you started this 30 years ago, did you say? 35. 35 years ago. Uh, the landscape was very different. Were, were the options available to do this kind of thing? I mean, or were most investors, even if you were, uh, you know, David Swenson or uh, the uh, the chief investment officer of the RK Mellon Foundation, your options were limited for going to brokerages or custodial services, weren't they? I mean, was it harder to do this 35 years ago than it would be today? It certainly was harder. I don't think that the multi-billion dollar families, it was, was not harder for them necessarily if they thought about it. I would, I would actually make the case that the world was so much simpler that it was less needed 35 years ago. Even though the optimal programs were still run this way 35 years ago, it was less needed because the world was far less complex. So when I started in the business, it was sort of a stocks, bonds, and cash US challenge. And private equity was an exotic options weren't exotic, hedge funds weren't exotic, international even was was rare. So when it became in that in that model, uh, you know, it's sort of a three factorial model where you got stocks, bonds, and cash, and you got one country, US. Today it's a sort of a 50 factorial model because you've got all the countries on one axis of the matrix and all the different types of securities on the other axis. 
So the complexity has completely skyrocketed and the noise has skyrocketed. So I think it was an optimal structure 35 years ago, which is why the most sophisticated people in the world used it. And today it's even more needed because of the noise and complexity and well, opportunity for that matter. I mean, okay. if you can harvest, if you can manage all this complexity and noise, there's far more opportunity. Well, let's talk about that uh, uh, noise. You know, you said 35 years ago, stocks, bonds, cash, maybe a little bit of international. Uh, today, alternatives, private equity, private placements, structured investments of various sorts. How do you navigate that when, you know, uh, uh, I, I I don't know how large your shop is there, how many analysts you have on staff, but, uh, you know, that might be one reason that someone would say, well, we need to go to a large institution because they can cover the universe uh, in a way that a smaller investment advisory shop cannot. Well, we definitely, uh, we have 110 people. And so um, I don't know exact number, but at Yale, I think they have fewer than 30. Mm -hmm. And so the way we, we, first of all, there's, you have to have an approach. So a CIO is not a consultant. A CIO is a, an investment manager. So think of the CIO as the overarching investment manager of the program. We're not providing information for other people to make decisions. We're making those point accountable decisions for our clients, whether they're families or institutions. And so you really have to have a, a, a style. Any good manager that we would hire, we look for a what we call an uninterrupted chain of compelling logic. How do they make decisions? Mm -hmm. So we have that same level of conviction and clarity on our decision making. And the first thing we do is we divide the world into three types of assets, growth-oriented assets, and not growth stocks versus value stocks, but all stocks would fall into the area of growth era, growth assets. So that includes private equity. So public and private equity and growth assets, income-oriented assets like bonds, and then hybrids, something that has a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. And so we look at every asset in the world and, and from a taxonomy standpoint in those three categories. And then we analyze each manager individually. And we're using our network to get access to great managers. So we're very rarely responding to incoming calls from managers. Normally, we're being referred into a manager that is closed, but uh, they're looking for a substantial client that has staying power and is going to be a great partner. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of analysis um, and focused on what we think are managers that are really adding value. So before a client brings you on board, you've, you've laid out this case to them, right? I mean, they, they see your style, your approach, and that's what they sign up for. Exactly. You know, so I, I guess the one of the things that we hear about a lot these days are how advisors on the flip side of the coin should, you know, not worry about investment management, that the that the passive indexes and the ETFs have solved all those problems. Uh, and we can diversify and index uh, cheaply. So the investment equation has been solved. And now the advisor has to turn to the other things that are important for the clients, uh, behavioral finance and making sure they don't sell at the wrong time, blah, blah, blah. I imagine you have a different opinion about this. Uh, in your opinion, has investment been solved by indexing and low-cost ETFs? So indexing it is an important component of every sophisticated program. And I would liken it to sort of public health in the sense that, first of all, I think Jack Bogle and, and Vanguard has done more for the average investor than anyone in history. 
mm-hmm. uh, because they, the, you know, the Hippocratic oath first do no harm. And, and so I absolutely think they've have, a, have had a terrific impact, but they're just foundational. Uh, I liken it to sort of public health. And uh, if you think you're living in a war zone and somebody comes in and says, hey, we're going to stop shooting each other and we're going to have clean water and sanitation. Everybody thinks that's terrific. So it's sort of an indictment of Wall Street to think that if somebody does no harm, they could become a, it could become revolutionary. But that's really, in a sense, what Vanguard did is they came in and recognized the mistakes that were being made on Wall Street and stopped them. They said, look, we're going to all the things that Jack Bogle said, all the money you save goes to you. And it's not what it's not what you pay for. It's what you don't pay for is what you get. And so that was a real breakthrough. Um, But that's not that's just the beginning. So you want to have in very sophisticated programs, you want to have broad market exposure. And the right way to do that is with indexing. So it's not, it is a lot there. In other words, you can add value to a client if you plan well and you give great professional service and you use indexes and sub-indexes. You can give very valuable professional service that way. It's not optimal. If you look at the Ivies and the great investment firms in the world, they do far better than that. Mm -hmm. So if the client is satisfied with that and you're satisfied with it as an advisor, then you can do that. Uh, but there's much you can do much better if you have access to better specialists and you have a more sophisticated approach. And um, one of the temptations that a lot of people do is they end up paying active fees for managers that if you, you know, on the surface at level level one analysis may not look like a closet indexer. But our in, our analysis, very sophisticated analysis will indicate that that manager that you're paying active management fees really is just another version of a closet indexer. So you got to be careful where you pay your active fees, but the active fees can be really worth it if you're with the right managers. And and it's only a portion. In other words, you probably have an indexed core in your equity approach, but when do you allocate among those sub-indexes and when is it time to use active managers? Those kinds of decisions are really what distinguishes, what differentiates great programs from good programs. Interesting. What about the notion then, if this is the way to go, index for core, bespoke around the edges, fitting into your investment style or your investment methodology, is it customizable for every client? Because I would imagine that the argument would be that, you know, not every client needs the same things, right? And there's different uh, bogeys to hit. There's different uh, uh, futures to, uh, you know, fund. Uh, so how much time do you give to trimming the sales for an individual client versus the investment process that you have established and bringing that to every single client. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Customization is key. And so we spend a tremendous amount of time planning and understanding not only what each client needs, but in a family's case, what each account, what the purpose of each account is. And our job is to deliver success with a high degree of certainty. And before you can do that, you have to define what success is. So that's where the planning comes in. And you know, success, uh, for example, if you liken it to a f- fitness program, one person might be training to be a triathlete, triathlon winner, and another person might be sh- just be training to enjoy their 70s. And those are very different goals. And so it's a similar kind of a thing in, a, in the investment world. And you can't really achieve success with certainty if you don't know what success is. So everybody, everything is custom designed and it changes over time. So you've got to really be focused on on the planning. And the way we work, uh, 
the other part of that is how do you customize it? If you think about using healthcare uh, again as an example and think about the Mayo Clinic, everybody who comes to the Mayo Clinic has an individual diagnosis, but there's modules of care. So if they need heart work, they go to the heart unit. If they need cancer work, they go to the cancer unit. So we have these modules of expertise that we bring to bear to to implement that customized plan. And we get and we get discounts because of our purchasing power. So managers and, and fees and so forth help us because we're using the $20 billion of purchasing power that we have helps us execute at a wholesale rate. What um you know, we hear a lot also these days about the the shrinking equity markets, uh, not as many stocks to invest in, uh, the increased use of alternatives uh, to make up some of that. Uh, what's your view on the increased use of private equity, other kinds of private placements, other alternative investments uh, in the registered investment advisory space? Well, you know, when you're trying to add value, you've got to look for inefficiencies. Uh, and so private markets, without question, are are way more inefficient, far less efficient than public markets. You mentioned the number, the declining number of stocks uh, in the public market. You know, the Russell 3000 has like 2,500 names in it today. There are millions of private companies in the United States. I mean, millions. I think the last time I looked, there were 27 million privately owned companies in the United States. And I think if you and if you adjusted for number of employees, you know, next thing you know, you had 15 million. So as opposed to you know, publicly traded stocks, which are far, far fewer than that. The coverage on these private companies, the transparency on the information and so forth is far less than in public companies. So not only are there more to pick from, but skilled managers can add value. If you look at the best managers versus the worst managers in public space in a particular niche, it might be two points, 200 basis points. In public, in private space, it could be 25 points. So it's a much less efficient space. And the fact that it is relatively illiquid is part of its inefficiency. The problem with it is you can do it poorly. You've really got to have the sophistication, the buying power, and the network to execute on it. Just going into private equity isn't going to solve it. You've got to be with the right managers. You've really got to know what you're doing. So that's one of the ways that big, sophisticated shops really add value. And if you look at the Ivy League colleges or the very big family groups, they are adding a lot of value through private markets. Yeah. Does it concern you at all that, uh, you know, as the private market uh, investments trickle downstream, so to speak, uh, to more of the retail RIA, uh, that, you know, there's technology platforms that are facilitating these kinds of investments where it just simply you pick an outcome and here's a drop down menu of managers and go. That seems to be a, a little bit more of a, I don't know, a, a trickier way to go about investing in private equity. Yeah, I don't, that, that is one of those places where I'm, I'm anticipating unfulfilled promises and, and, you know, we are doing everything ourselves. We're doing everything as far as the due diligence goes and the access and um, our clients pay no additional fee for access to our private, private markets portfolios, because if they did, that would be a conflict. That's a perfect example of the conflict of interest that a CIO dare not have. Mm. So with our approach, if a client has 10% or 30% in private markets or no private markets, they pay the same fee based on assets under management. So that kind of conflict-free structure is what's key if you're going to function as a CIO. You know, we may be wrong, but we'll never be conflicted. 
And that's the notion. That's the kind of relationship you need to have with a client if they're going to trust you as their chief investment officer. Chief investment officer is really an employee. It's not a vendor. It's not a product salesman. It's really a member of the client's staff. And so that model to fulfill that right, you've really got to have this A, sophistication, B, purchasing power. I mean, even a billion dollar family, for example, would have a very hard time replicating our capability. I know what our budget is on our on our investment strategy group. So even firms with anything firm, any firm less with, I would say, less than $5 billion would have a very hard time just paying for the people that you need to do to execute this. You can still not do well, but you at least have to have the horsepower to be able to buy, you know, pay for the staff to do the work so that you can cut through the lack of transparency in the private markets and execute it well. Interesting. When you launched this, was the idea to first go to high net worth families or was it organizations, institutions that you wanted to go to first? What was, how did you map out those first few years? Yeah, it was definitely families, 100%. And I don't think, I probably was, we were probably in business five years or more before we had our first institution. And that was because one of our family clients said, could you help me with my alma mater? You know, my college's investment program is a wreck. And would you, could you help us? So we did. And, you know, I, I sort of see myself as a carpenter. If you need me to make a cabinet, I can make a cabinet. If you need me to frame a house, I can frame a house. If it has to do with money, we can do that. And so um, it was you know, really, a, really a small step for us to get into the institutional business. And it's been great for us. You talk about um, the mission-driven organizations that you're attracted to, or I guess that are attracted to you. Um, what do you mean by that when you talk about mission-driven organizations? Well, first of all, I would just say that life's too short to live without idealism. And we get a lot of psychic income about from our clients, both the families who are uniformly philanthropic and then the institutions that they love. So we, for example, manage the money for the homeless shelter program in South Florida. We manage monies for colleges that are, um, one college in particular is a prominent college. Our largest institutional client has uh, no tuition. It's 100% scholarship for really good students, but uh, from underprivileged families. So we that mission focus for us is key. We manage very little pension money, and we're really not in that business. Uh, we're really focused on these foundations that are providing community services and supporting the arts. And then colleges, all of which are each of which is, uh, you know, cornerstone institution in its community. So we get a lot of psychic income out of that. And so do a lot of our managers. So when we're trying to get into private equity and venture managers that are closed, um, we certainly represent ourselves. We want to be the best partner in the world for those for those private equity firms and venture firms and private credit firms. Uh, but we also talk about our clients and say, talk about the work that our clients are doing, is do, each client is doing, and say to them, you know, that client, that good work needs your excess return even more than Yale does. So you should think of us as one of your favorite LPs. And that really does get people's attention. They would rather uh, feel like they're getting also not only well-paid, but some psychic income out of the, the work they're doing. So uh, we love mission-driven institutions. We think that the better we do for them, the more good work they can do. So we really, it, it helps us get excited about work every day. Does that flip around to the other direction as well when you talk about a mission-driven organization being selective in the investments that they would make based on impact or, you know, we talk about impact investing or social entrepreneurship or these kinds of things. 
Are you, are you directing money from these mission-driven organizations to those kinds of funds? We are very sensitive to our clients' needs in a broad sense. So we think about their, their operating risk, their financial risk, and the needs of their communities. Having said that, boards are often split about these issues, about socially responsible investing or impact. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do as the investment department is to help the board deal with those issues, help families deal with those issues. Um, we have a great client that is based in Kentucky, and they've got a history of tremendous social activism. And periodically, you know, this the it's at a college, and the, periodically their um, students will get up and sort of wound up about socially responsible investing. And the committee often says, let us know what to exclude, because socially responsible investing is an exclusionary kind of an approach. You have to exclude things. And it's a, it's got a historic Christian affiliation. So most Christian schools would exclude gambling, tobacco, and um, uh, yeah. well, gambling, tobacco, and liquor, for example. Yeah, sin stocks, yeah. Yeah, sin stocks. So, but Kentucky happens to be known for bourbon. Uh, tobacco is one of their most prominent cash crops, and they do have the Kentucky Derby every year. So, you know, it's sort of a, a thing where it's very hard to get a group centered around what what I what what to exclude, uh, what direction specifically to take the portfolio in, and then to say, wait a second, isn't the work we're doing charitable? Or isn't our mission, you know, going to change the world, help change the world? So if we get a lower return, isn't that hurting our mission? Both of those sides of the arguments have to be weighed. And we've had some very creative approaches. For example, foundations who are making grants, they might, instead of making a grant, they might make a loan, which has a low probability of being paid back. But it doesn't have a zero probability of being paid back. So it is a it's, it sort of serves two purposes. It can be part of the loan portfolio while it is simultaneously part of the grant portfolio. And you just have to understand the probabilities that that, rip, that implies. So we're very involved in that. And the idea is to find a sweet spot between satisfying the community's needs and fat, satisfying the return needs of the institution. Interesting. You know, you've written quite a bit about this notion of, I think it's the Jim Collins book, uh, Good to Great. Yep. Uh, you know, how how's, how are you applying some of those uh, thoughts in that book to to your firm, to Hurdle Callahan? Well, we think about that every day and we're a very good firm. And, you know, number one and number two, you're either going forward or backwards. Status quo is, a, is an illusion. So we're a very good firm. Uh, some people might say we're great, but I think the the idea to be great, to try to be great every day is something that is is just motivates you and keeps you on your toes. We like to think about focusing on our mission. If you like the fact that we talk about philanthropic families and uh, and mission-driven institutions, that's our space. That's what we love to do. And we really think we're best at that. We think that we can come in and do the planning and the execution of a program as well as, if not better than everything else we do. Uh, we're very focused on that. That's a good to great concept where you have this notion of a hedgehog concept that you have uh, you know, three circles. You have the what do you love? You have what can you be best at? And then finally, what are the economic drivers of the value proposition and where those three circles overlap? That's your hedgehog focus concept. So we've stay focused on what we do. Uh, we also stay focused on the idea that we're trying to build a new kind of institution. So we're not just trying to 
you know, gather some AUM and then flip it into a, a roll-up strategy. We think we can be a new kind of institution. We've been in business 35 years, and we've done all the work to be in business for the next 35 years. So um, we really focus on what's best for the clients over the long run, and what can we do at the firm to really get better and better, and understanding markets around the world, getting access to sophisticated thought. For example, recently, you know, probably five years ago, maybe four years ago, we dismantled most of the traditional hedge fund program. And we were able to achieve, to acquire each type of the return source, each component return source, much cheaper, and then re-aggregated ourselves. So we were delivering, delivering hedge fund kind of returns at a much lower fee. So that kind of capability accrues to the benefit of the client. And um, so we want to stay focused on our mission, on, on what we do great, best, and we want to stay focused uh, on this notion of building a better institution. And so that's, I would mm -hmm. say, how we do that every day. Yeah, no, that's a, that's fascinating. I've looked at hear more about replicating that hedge fund strategy at a lower cost. But and let me ask this: you know, twenty five, twenty billion dollars under management, right? Um, and uh, no acquisitions. Now we just, I mean, that's one of the keys is that Jim Collins says you, you can buy growth, but you can't buy great. And so, you know, we really have spent recent years focusing on our culture and saying, you know, who are we? And uh, we have to feel that we're very strong before we could make acquisitions because, you know, people say, find like-minded professionals. Well, you got to know what like-minded is before you can really go out and identify like-minded professionals. So we have had two teams join us from a bank um, that was that bank was changing direction strategically, and they were like-minded people, and they've joined the firm, and it's just been a tremendous success story. And we have a new office in Minneapolis and one in Scottsdale based on that, and they're just terrific people, and they fit right into the culture, and it's it's great. So we have never made an acquisition. We have done two of these liftouts. And I think there's no question we are ready to do more, but we weren't ready to do that until we went through the process of kind of defining very specifically who we were, what our value proposition was, and and sticking to that good to great concept. Interesting. So we could maybe expect to see some more liftouts. Yeah, well, that's a this is a good opportunity to say if you're if you're you know a dedicated professional and you want to have better outcomes for your clients. And most of the RIAs are focused pretty much on families. Um, I was saying to somebody, if you're in Tulsa and you have, you know, a $2 billion practice, you know, the minute you join Hurdle Callahan, you become credible with the University of Tulsa's endowment. Mm. So you really, our, our notion in that world is that we're not a financial consolidator. You see a lot of the people in the world today consolidating RIAs as a financial strategy. Mm -hmm. We're a strategic integrator. So using... The notion, the metaphor that I touched on earlier is a Mayo Clinic. You know, the consolidators in my mind are sort of a, like a PE-backed strategy where you might be rolling up doctor's practices that you would eventually sell to Kaiser Permanente or somebody like that. We're really, we see ourselves as a Mayo Clinic going out saying to doctor's practices, join our network, become part of the Mayo Clinic, deliver better solutions to your clients because you already have the interpersonal relationship with that client, which nobody could ever replace or, or replicate. And, but don't you want more power behind you at a wholesale rate? And don't you want to enjoy your practice more while you have it because of this capability, do better things for your clients, grow your practice. 
and then have it be worth more when it's time for you to, to retire. So to, it's time for you to sell your equity back into the system. So that's our story. And we, we kind of feel like there's a niche there that some people might respond to that. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I uh, I know we're running out of time here. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't just ask uh, one quick question as the, uh, the outsourced chief investment officer for many individuals and organizations, markets, where are we? Recession? No recession? Uh, uh, are we heading into the pivot and interest rate hikes? What's uh, what's uh, what's on the what's on the agenda? Well, this is good news for RIAs because nobody knows. <laughs> and what what that means is that the counseling that you give you that we all give our clients is the most important, most value added process because you can't predict. You can only prepare. The most sophisticated people in the world understand that you cannot predict this stuff. If anything, you know, somebody will come up with an articulate process and I'm say, that's great. That's interesting. But I'm pretty sure it's already factored into the market. So the only way that you can add value through prediction is if somehow you know something that the market doesn't already know. And, you know, that's that's what I would say with that. And and so nobody knows whether it's a recession or not. You know, my instincts are that earning certainly the stock market is not cheap. International is cheaper than the U.S. Non-U.S. is cheaper than U.S. And it's been so long since non-U.S. outperformed U.S. that people think it can't happen again, but it will someday. Um, so things are not cheap here, but earnings keep coming in. We don't know about interest rates, but my first mortgage was at 14. So uh, we can stand. These interest rates are higher than they were a year ago and two years ago, but they're not that high yet. So I think, uh, you know, it's sort of state as she goes and stay close to your clients because that's what they value most. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, Jonathan Hurdle, thank you very much for joining us on the RA Edge podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And I'm David Armstrong, Executive Director for WealthManagement.com. Thank you for listening. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.